0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Belmont Podcast. My name is Brian, I'm the pastor of Mount Hope in Belmont, Massachusetts. It's great to talk to you again. If you live in the Belmont area, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning for our worship service. We meet at 10 a.m. at 51 Lexington Street in Belmont. You can find out more, of course, at our website, Mount Hope, it's all spelled out, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E.org. In this sermon, we continue our series through the book of Titus, a real small book in the New Testament, but one that is super important for us as followers of Jesus. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you listen closely, because I believe that God has something He'd like to say to you. Uh, I asked this question at the beginning of the service. I said, when is the last time that you were a part of a culture or walked into a culture that wasn't your own. And because that happened, because you did that, Uh, there was something that happened that made you a little uncomfortable. or You weren't exactly sure the meaning of what was happening and why it was happening. That happens to us. Whether you uh, are interacting in a new culture, Uh, I've gone on a number of short-term missions trips, and so you go into a new culture for a week or two, and not everything is the same as what you're used to. And that can be a a little unsettling sometimes. You're not sure exactly why everything's happening the way it's happening. Uh, And some of you, many of you, have moved from a different culture to the United States, and I'm sure the exact same thing has happened. You walk into the United States from another culture, and you say to yourself, why are these people doing this thing that way? And you're asking those sorts of questions. It could be a little unsettling sometimes trying to figure out some of those things. I know one time uh, I was invited to preach at a group, and the group that I was invited to preach at was a local group, Uh, and they were all part of the same ethnic group. And even though they they attended churches in the area, they maintained this fellowship, and they said, would you come and and would you preach? And I got there, and I said, no problem. And they said, and would you serve communion? And I said, sure, no problem, I'll serve communion as well. And so we started the service, and I preached the sermon, and everything seemed to be going well. And then I said, now it's time for us to take communion. So I invited up the people that we were taking communion with, and I was standing up at the front and we had, you can picture it maybe, the communion table was there and I was, I was giving the, the words that I was saying before we were going to take communion and I looked around and I looked at the people next to me and on the other side of me and everyone in the seats and all of a sudden it hit me. I'm the only person with my shoes on And I don't know what the rule was, but everybody in the room knew, except for me, that whenever we went to take communion, it was time to take your shoes off. Now, I'm sure that that had a lot of meaning to the group because it's holy ground, it's a holy place, we're going to to remove our shoes for communion. But as an outsider, as someone coming in, something got lost in the translation. I didn't realize that was going to happen. And maybe you have stories like that too, where you walk into a culture that's not your own. It can be a work culture. It can be an ethnic culture, it can be a different family culture than the one that you're used to, and things happen and people say things and do things that you're just not exactly sure um, why they're happening that way. It happens if you ever travel and you see maybe signs that are supposed to be translated into English. You may travel and someone's translated a sign and it may say something like this, take care, fall into the water carefully. Anytime you try to take one thing from one culture and put it to another culture, it causes issues. This is my favorite sign. Uh, This sign, someone put it into uh, a program like Google Translate or something. It came out with translate server error, and they went with that as the translation on the sign. And it happens, right? Sometimes you try to take one thing from one culture and put it into another culture. It happens that things can be unsettling. Why do I mention this? Why do I mention this? The verses we're going to look at today If we're going to understand exactly what they mean, then we have to do everything we can to try to understand those verses in the culture in which they were written. Does that make sense? Here's what happens sometimes sometimes we come to Bible verses and we read them through the lens of our current culture. So we're living in the Western world in 2017. And we have a certain way of looking at the world. We have a certain understanding of things. And we come to Bible verses that were written thousands of years ago uh, to a different culture in a different time. They were spoken by God. They still have value and meaning for us today. God continues to speak through his word. But they were originally given to a different group of people in a different time and place. And when we take our own perspective and overlay that on those verses without considering the perspective of the people to whom the word was originally given... That can cause problems. Something can get lost in the translation. And so this morning we're going to take time to be very careful that we do our best to understand to whom these verses were written and why they were written. Because if we assume things about the verses, if we just take our mindset, our Western world mindset, and overlay it on these verses, we could come up with a very poor translation of what these verses actually mean. When I was in seminary, my professors had a saying about dealing with God's word, and the saying was, context is king. Always, 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 context is king. What are the other verses that are around this verse? What, what was the people group to whom this verse was written? What did the world look like when it was written? What is the original language that the verse is written in? What would it have meant to those people at that time? And so this morning, I'm going to say to you the exact same thing that in these verses we're looking at today. Context is king, and we're going to do our best We're going to do our best to look at that together. So we're in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And we pulled these verses out of this book. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Titus. And Paul has been, the Apostle Paul has been writing this letter to a mentee named Titus. And he has been talking to him about uh, how he's to set up the church in an island called Crete. And Paul has talked to Titus about leadership, who Paul should get as leaders. And he said, you should find leaders whose character matches up with their creed, whose behavior matches up with their belief. Follow those people, Titus. And then he says, and don't follow the people who have a gap in that in their life. If you find people who are charismatic and dynamic and people want to listen to, but there's a gap between their character and their content, between what they do and what they say, don't follow those people, Titus. And then we turned last week to the people of the church, and Paul talked to different generations, if you remember this, if you were with us, older men and younger men and older women and younger men, uh, women, and said, this is how the generations are to act in the church to one another. And in fact, not just for the leadership, but also for the church, there should be a consistency between what you say you believe and what you do, your, your belief and your behavior, your creed and your character, And now Paul singles out another group of people that would be sitting in the church in Crete. And he speaks to them directly. But it's a group that's a little odd for us to hear him speak to. And this is what he says in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be, well, pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now this is an interesting group that Paul uh, picks to speak to, isn't it? And the challenge that we have with these verses is that these verses hit our modern ears, and there's something that we don't like about these verses. And the thing that we don't like is that Paul says to slaves, be submissive to your own masters in everything. What he does not say in these verses, and this bothers us, bothers many who read these verses, is Paul does not say, slavery is an unjust, cruel system that the church should lead the way in getting rid of. In fact, many people will use these verses. If you go online and you listen to uh, people who are speaking against uh, Christianity and against those who follow Jesus, and they're making the argument that Christians are on the wrong side of history. These, are verses from, these verses from Titus are verses that they will sometimes use. And they will say, look at this book that these people say they believe. This is a book that condones slavery. In fact, rather than saying we should get rid of slavery, one of the most important writers of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, says slaves be submissive to your own masters in everything. And so the argument will go from someone who's speaking against Christianity. You see, this book is old and it has nothing to say to us today because it even condones slavery. And these specific verses, in fact, maybe you have a friend or a co-worker who is Uh, speaks up about these things and has some things to say about the Bible and the church and following Jesus. And you may have heard them use verses like this to say, the New Testament is unreliable and you shouldn't do anything it says because look, it even condones slavery. So before we even get to what Paul is saying here, because here's the challenge. Paul is saying something that I believe is extremely important, not only for this segment of the church, but also for us today. And the challenge is, if we don't understand exactly who he's speaking to and why he's speaking to them, we can miss the message of what he's trying to say. Something will get lost in translation. So before we even get to what Paul is saying, we need to talk about to whom he's speaking and what this might have meant and looked like in the first century world. So Paul is writing to the first century Christians living in the Greco-Roman world. And he speaks to this specific group and he addresses them as slaves. The question is what did that look like in the first century Greco-Roman world? Because for us in our context, our minds immediately jump to the slave trade of the of the 16th, 17th, 18th century, which everyone in the room agrees that was a terrible, deplorable, horrible reality. That's where our mind goes. The question is, is that where the minds of Paul's listeners in that day would have gone? And I would suggest to you the answer to that is no. That if we take Paul's word, slaves here, and we equate it specifically to what we are familiar with, uh, with the slave trade that happened in this country, which is ter- a terrible thing. Or maybe you're from another culture originally, and you can think of another example of that in your own context. Either the people group you came from, or someone, uh, something that happened in your culture in the past, where one group of people captured another group of people and forced them into slavery. Paul is talking about something different. In fact, some translations of the Bible don't translate this Greek word doulos, slaves, here in this passage. Some translations of the Bible use the word bondservant. In fact, some of the Bibles that are in the the seats here this morning use use the word bondservant. Another phrase that you could use is indentured servant, indentured servant, because what Paul's speaking to here in this culture, in this context, is something very different than where our minds go when we hear the word Slaves. There's a historian whose name is uh, Murray J. Harris, and he wrote a book called Slave to Christ. And in that book, he gave four distinctives, four characteristics that define what a slave might have looked like in first, the first century Greco-Roman world. In fact, uh, the way that this even came about is that, is that one person would go to another person and they would say, okay, uh, I, would like, I need this sum of money. Or you'll do this for me, and as payment, I'll agree to work for you. And they enter into this contract relationship. Something very different than someone capturing someone else. A slave is someone in that culture who would have gone to somebody else and said, I need this from you, I need this amount of money, or I'd like to enter into this arrangement where I am going to work for you. You are, in a sense, going to become my master, and we're going to have this contract together. Uh, but it's, it's done in a way, it's, it's almost like a stronger boss-employee relationship where there is more of a contract, more of a commitment, more of a binding together. Where I, as the slave, agree to work this amount of days, this amount of years to pay off my debt. So when you look at a slave in the first century greco roman world, you're looking at someone that was indistinguishable from anyone else. This was not a system that was based on race this is not a system that was based on one culture take, forcibly taking over another culture. This was people within this own, their own culture and their own context entering into these sort of agreements together. The second thing uh, that Murray Harris states is that slaves were often an educated people. This was a way sometimes for young people to get started. Uh, they were educated people who in some cases held high positions of management within organizations and the way the society was structured. The third thing that's true about these people is they were often not poor. These are people that are entering into these agreements and arrangements as a way to get ahead and and get going in life. And so many of them were not poor. They weren't doing this because they were poor. They were doing it because it was advantageous within the culture to enter into these sorts of binding agreements. And the fourth thing that he said is the slave relationship was almost, in, in almost all cases, temporary that very few people were slaves for life. They entered into these binding contracts, and when the contract was fulfilled, it was fulfilled, and they were able to go on their way. So to say that what Paul is saying here is an apples-to-apples comparison to what happened uh, in the history of this country doesn't necessarily work. In fact, there is one case in Paul's writings I know of where Paul does give an apples-to-apples comparison, and it happens in another letter Paul wrote to a man named Timothy, another young man he was mentoring. And in Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is giving a list of people who are ungodly and who are unrighteous. And he uses this word enslavers in this list. These are people who are unrighteous and ungodly, Timothy, and he uses this word enslavers within that list. This Greek word refers to anybody who would forcibly capture somebody else and sell them into slavery. So if you're going to compare apples to apples, Paul speaks very specifically to that group, and he condemns it. But when he's talking to this group of people who, by the way, are sitting in the church among everybody else, not ostracized from society, not in somewhere else, when he's talking to these bond servants, these indentured servants, He's able, he speaks directly to them. And it's as a completely different group of people, a different system than the enslavers he talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the enslavers that we often think about when we hear the word slaves. If we're talking about that, the New Testament expressly forbids it. But we're talking about something different here, and that's important for us to recognize. The second thing I'd suggest to you quickly, and I'd, I'd, ta- I'd encourage you to take a look at, is Paul, when he's talking to these indentured servants, bond servants, he absolutely does talk to the masters as well, just not in these verses. If we're going to take all of Paul's writing into account, he is very clear that this indentured servant-master relationship is something that needs to be done with great character and integrity. This is what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. Masters. The people who are over the indentured servants stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, namely God, is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Again, in the book of Galatians. Paul says, for in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God. When it comes to the kingdom of God, there is no one who is a slave and there is no one who is free. And again, he's talking about this indentured servant bond servant relationship. And the final one here in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, were you a bond servant or a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, take that opportunity. If you have a chance to work off this contract, go for it. You should do that. And so when Paul's talking about the whole relationship, and if we take all of his writings into account, in fact, there's a whole book, a whole letter called Philemon, in which Paul talks about these relationships. Paul speaks to both sides and says, listen, both of you handle this relationship in a godly manner. So then, if this is to whom Paul is speaking, and it's not a verse about what we often think it is, then what is it he's saying to this group of people And then what is he saying to us? This is where I think it's so important because I believe Paul is saying something here that's not only very important for this group of people, but is wildly important for us in our culture today. Paul spoke to this group of people sitting in the church and said to them, you need to have good Godly character in the way you live your life. Now he had said this to the older men and to the younger men, He said it to the older women and the younger women. We talked about this last week. He said it to the leaders of the church. Why now then say it specifically to the indentured servants sitting there? Because I think Paul knew that those people were susceptible to the same thing you and I are susceptible in our life today. And that is we can hear all the talk about godly character. We can hear all of the things that are said to the, to the leaders and the, the older men and the younger men and the older women and the younger men, women like we talked about last week. We can hear all that stuff and we think it's great. But then we can look at our own life and our own situation and find plenty of reasons and plenty of excuses why we don't have to live it out and why that is not binding to us. And I think Paul knew that this group of people who were sitting in the church were in a unique place where they might be able to look at their situation and say, Listen, Paul, you don't understand. I'd love to be a godly person, I'd love to be the kind of person who is kind and compassionate and caring, but I have this re- agreement in my life with this horrendous boss, and that boss is treating me. Unfairly and inappropriately. And I'm so sick of this contract that I entered into that I don't really, I I know what the rules are. I know what God wants me to do. I know what good Christian character looks like. But this situation is so awful and so bad that it's okay. I, I know I have a terrible attitude. I know I go into this thing and I have no respect for the people who are above me and I know my heart is growing cold, but it's okay, Paul, because if you knew how bad this situation was, you would do the same thing as well. And Paul knew that that group was in a unique space, I think, to allow their life situation, their current life situation, to become an excuse for not living the life that God had called them to live. And he says to them, listen, just because you're in this situation right now, where you're underneath somebody else and they get to be your boss for a while, don't let that be an excuse to not live the life that God is calling you to live. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly in my own life have fallen victim to this. I don't think any of us, any of us in the room, have ever not felt like we have not gotten the short end of the stick. All of us have places in our life where we feel like we've gotten a bad deal, where we've faced injustice. We've walked into that office place and our boss is just a jerk and it's not right and it's unfair. We're in a marriage and the marriage is not going well and it's not right and it's not fair. We had someone do something to us that was unjust. A family member did something to us. Someone in this world did something to us, and it wasn't right, and it was unjust. We had something just happen in our life that was wrong. Fairness ended a long time ago in this world. In fact, fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. It ended almost right away. This world became a very broken place. And so somewhere in our life, all of us have experienced some level of injustice. Some of us, uh, we look at the, the resources we have, the money we have, and we look at the person next to us or the person down the street or the family members or the other people, and we say, It is so unjust that here I am dealing with this small amount when so many other people have so much around me. And the question is not whether or not it's unjust. Don't get me wrong here. Those situations may be unjust, they may be wrong. But Paul is saying, don't let that be an excuse in your life not to live the godly way that God has called you to live. Don't let that be an excuse for godly character in your life. It's so easy to make that excuse. Even in the simplest things. Even when someone cuts you off in traffic and you say something you shouldn't have said or you feel anger you shouldn't feel. It is so easy for us to justify those emotions and those reactions Because we got the short end of the stick. Because that person did something wrong to us. And we will do the same thing and bigger things as well. Listen, I know I'm not acting in a godly way in my marriage. I know I'm not exhibiting godly character in my relationship with my family members as a parent, as a child, as a husband, as a wife. Listen, I know I'm not walking into my workplace and exhibiting godly character. I know I'm not doing what God wants me to do, but you don't understand how bad that situation is. And because that situation is so bad, I think I'm justified in this example to do whatever I want. I think God might understand In fact, I had somebody once come into my office, this was a long time ago, and say to me, they were doing something they knew they shouldn't be doing, and it was hurting them, and it was hurting their family. And they said to me, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I think God understands how bad I've been wronged here and is okay with it. And sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We say to ourselves, listen, this is wrong. I should make more money. I should have been farther in my life. People just don't listen to me. I'm getting getting put down here in this area. I've been been getting the short end of the stick. And we use that as an excuse not to live the way that God's calling us to live. And Paul is saying to this group of people, do not fall into that trap. Why? Why? Well, he says it very specifically in verse 10. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, slaves, bond servants, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And then he says these words so that, and this is why, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And this is what Paul says to them. Listen. No matter where you are and what you're doing, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you represent him. No matter where you are and what you're doing, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you represent him. And so, if you're in this relationship, Paul says, where you're the indentured servant, how you live and how you act is giving a picture to your boss of who Jesus Christ is. If your boss is someone uh, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, doesn't follow Jesus Christ, isn't a Christian. How you act and how you behave in this relationship, Paul says, is giving a picture to them. You, are, you want to put Christ on you and go into that place. And even when, they're wrong, when, even when they wrong you, even when you experience injustice, you live in such a way that who Christ is is shown to that person. See, those of us are Christians, we often think that the gospel is something that we pass down to people. So we have the grace of God in our lives, maybe. We trust in Jesus Christ. We believe he saved us from our sins. And we take that message and we try to find people who we feel like are worse off than us or below us in the socioeconomic standing. And we say, okay, I have this grace. I want to pass it on to you. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul's reminding us here is that the gospel is also passed along the other way too. That we have a responsibility with everyone we come in contact with, even when the situation may feel unjust or unjust to us, to live in such a way that the gospel is passed up as well. And so I think Paul comes to this group of people and he singles them out and he says, listen, don't let your life situation be an excuse for not living out Christian character. Don't use your life situation and the injustice you've experienced, the things you're frustrated about as an excuse not to live the way that God's called you to live because the way that you live will impact people either towards Jesus Christ or away from them. My understanding is there's a part of Cairo, Egypt that's called Garbage City. I've never been to Cairo. Maybe some of you have. I don't know much about Garbage City, Uh, But there is a part of Cairo, this is a picture here that's called Garbage City, and every single day some 7,000 people, 7,000 garbage men go and they rummage through the garbage of the city trying to find things of of value, things that they can use, food that they can eat. And I'm sure that you are uh, rightly assuming that this is the poorest of the poor who live in Cairo, Egypt. And so every morning, these 7,000 usually men with their uh, carts or bags or whatever it is that they have, they go into the local dumps and they search through to see what it is that they can find. In 1972, a young Egyptian businessman lost his wristwatch. It was valued at roughly $11,000. And you can imagine in 1972 money, that was a huge thing to lose. And the story goes that as he was rummaging through Garbage City one day, a very poor man came across the $11,000 watch and on the back of the watch was engraved this wealthy Egyptian businessman's name. The man returned it to the businessman and he said to him as he returned the watch, my Christ told me to be honest until death and gave him the watch back. How much right would we say that man had to that watch? It was lost. And in our current culture and in the way that we think, we would say, hey, finders keepers. This man who has suffered so much injustice in his life should take that watch and go make his life better. But instead, this man brought it back to this businessman, and he said these words, My Christ told me to be honest until death. Here's what happened. Because of the garbage man's act of obedience, the Egyptian businessman later told a reporter, I didn't know Christ at the time, but I told that man that I saw Christ in him. I told him, because of what you have done in your great example, I will worship the Christ you are worshiping. The businessman, true to his words, studied the Bible and grew in his faith. Soon he and his wife began ministering to the Egypts physically and spiritually poor. And in 1978, this man was ordained by the Coptic Orthodox Church and now leads a church that meets just outside of Garbage City. There are many stories like this within the kingdom of God over generations where people that have suffered some sort of injustice in life have the opportunity to model Jesus Christ to the people Above them, the people who are their bosses, the people who are wealthier than them, the people who just in this world have a higher socioeconomic standing. And because of their willingness to live out Christian godly character, that person has seen Christ in them and has started to follow Jesus Christ. Whenever we use it as an excuse, whenever I say, you know what my bosses mean? I'm not making enough money, nobody appreciates me. I've gotten the short end of the stick here. Things just aren't good at home. And so you know what? I'm just going to live the way I want to live. We give the opposite message about who Jesus Christ is. And so I'd ask you just to think about this this morning. Every one of us in our life, when we find ourselves in these situations, has the opportunity to live in such a way that people see Jesus Christ through us or to live in a way that they see no difference in us than the rest of the people around us. The person who had the greatest excuse to just do whatever he wanted because of the injustice he faced was Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was executed, hung on a cross, and he was the only perfect person that ever lived. If anyone had a reason to feel they had experienced great injustice. It was Christ himself. If anyone had a reason to look up into heaven and say, you know what, the plan is off. This is too difficult. This whole thing is messed up. This is unfair and unright. I haven't done anything wrong. It was Jesus Christ himself. But you can look in the Bible and in a place called Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That rather than run away from it, he went right into it and did exactly what his father asked him to do in what was the most unjust situation anyone ever faced. And we're called to do the same thing, not under our own strength, but under the strength of him who did it for us on the cross, that we would ask the Holy Spirit, that we would ask Jesus Christ to work in and through us, that in these situations, we might be able to show his love and show his light to those who need it. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we, as we close this morning. And listen, like Justin said, hey, maybe there's a place in your life where you're saying to yourself, you know what, I'm doing this exact same thing. There's a place in my life where I feel like I'm getting the short end of the stick, where I feel like I've been wronged, where I feel life hasn't been fair to me, and as a result, I am not living the life that God is calling me to live Listen, whether you submit it anonymously or with your name on it, I would love to be praying for you this week. There's a spot on the back of that card. There's a spot on the back of that card just to write down what it is that you're facing, what it is that you're dealing with. And in a few minutes, we're gonna pass some buckets and you can turn in that card. We'd love to be praying for you this week. But some of us in this place, we need to respond to this right now. Not just with filling out a card, we need to respond in prayer. And come before God and say, God, you know what? I know I'm doing this in my life, and I know it's not right, and I need you to forgive me for it. So I'd invite you just where you are to bow your head and close your eyes and just think with me for a moment. Are there places in your life where you are tempted or where you are ignoring godly character and ignoring the life you know you should be leading because you feel like you're getting the short end. Because you feel like the situation is unfair. Are there places in your life right now in the way that you're treating your spouse, in the way that you're treating the relationships with people who are close to you, in the way that you are treating your work environment, in the way that you're treating your schooling environment, are there things that you are doing because you walk in and you say to yourself, this is so unfair, people are so unfair to me, life has been unfair to me, I've gotten a short end of this whole thing. And as a result, just because you're upset or you're angry or, or you're mad at God, you are not living the life that God is calling you to live. Maybe today's the day you tell God you're sorry and ask him to give you the strength to live the life that you know he wants you to live, to do the things you know he wants you to do. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a couple of songs, a couple of final songs. And as we do, some of the leaders of the church are going to be in the back of this room. And if you want someone to pray with you this morning, could be about this sermon. It could be just something you're facing in life. We want to do that. So come back and we'll pray with you. Maybe this morning as you, as you consider what God is saying, you need to spend some time just alone with God. You're free to do that in your seat or you're free to come up to these altars, come up to the front of the room, kneel here and pray and spend time in God's presence. God, this morning we come to you knowing that there are times in our lives where we make excuses and we don't live the life you're calling us to lead. That rather than put Christ on us, that rather than show Jesus Christ and his love to the world around us, we get bitter and we get angry and we get upset and and we act the exact opposite way. God, we thank you for your forgiveness this morning. And pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who would show you in all situations that others might come to know who you are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Hey, thanks again for listening to this sermon from the Belmont campus of Mount Hope. If you live in the Belmont area, we'd love to have you join us each Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you'd like to know more about Mount Hope Christian Center with campuses in Burlington and Belmont, Massachusetts, you can visit our website at www.mounthope.org.